0: Good morning. Yesterday marked the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Morning Ireland brought us this reminder of the devastation and brutality of this war.
1: At this point in time, we do not have exact information as the attacks happened in the dark. But what we do know is that war has started in Ukraine.
2: It's not planned to
0: be occupied, but it just destroyed.
3: <laughs> well, you have your suitcase with you. Or are you planning to leave Kiev? What are your plans? No, no, we are standing. We will stand and fight. And we hope that the world will understand it and help us.
2: A soldier entered our house. My husband and I were there. At gunpoint, he took me to a neighboring house. He was ordering me... Take your clothes off, or I'll shoot you. Then he started raping me. While he was doing that, four more soldiers entered. I thought I was done for.
4: Look, there's one way for this war to
5: end, the rational way. Putin to pull out of Ukraine. He's paying a very heavy price for failing to do it, but he's inflicting incredible, incredible carnage on the civilian population of Ukraine. Bombing nurseries, hospitals, children's homes.
6: It's sick what he's
1: doing. I
4: thank
6: everyone who acts in support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues.
0: From Morning Ireland. Also yesterday, Claire spoke to Ukrainian MPs Fyatislav Yurash and she replayed a clip of their interview from this time last year when he had just been issued with an AK-47.
6: I'm no uh, soldier. I'm not exactly uh, uh, trained to its full proper extent. But the reality is that when you have to fight for your life, you learn pretty quickly. We yesterday had a start of uh, the effort to try and provide means for everybody who, just, uh, who wants to help defend their country. I was in a huge queue of MPs actually waiting for, to try and get the weapons to try and uh, again resist the Russians in every way imaginable.
2: So that was a year ago, exactly, pretty much, Sviatoslav. Do you remember sitting in your home with the AK-47, just not knowing what might happen next?
6: Vividly. And uh, to God's view, at that point, I was very confident that uh, I am committed to this fight uh, in whatever way it shall proceed, because this is our country and we shall defend it in every single way, with every single one of our um, instruments including AK-47s.
2: And having experienced all that you have over the course of the last year, do you feel like a different person to the man who queued up for the AK-47 a year ago?
6: Well, I put that AK-47 to good use. I mobilised with the Bucha Territorial Defence. I mentioned they named the town because it's sadly very much infamous now in the West because of the tragedies that have been uncovered there done by the Russians.
2: Have you been involved in direct combat then?
6: Yes, yes. I've been in the trenches for many, many weeks. It's the place which has the most meaning as far as uh, the fact that your country is uh, living through, through basically the biggest challenge of this century, not just in, not just, uh, in Ukraine, but uh, I dare say uh, globally.
0: Ukrainian MPs Fyatislav Yurash with Claire. And it was a week of meetings and speeches. On Monday, a surprise visit to Kiev by US President Joe Biden and a pledge of $500 million in financial and military aid. On Tuesday, in Moscow, President Vladimir Putin gave a speech, one that came in just short of two hours. Former British ambassador to Belarus, John Everard, took a time out and spoke to Claire.
2: He's still going and uh, he's into over an hour and a half now of his speech. I know that he said the West will use anyone, terrorists, Nazis, even the devil himself, in order to fight Russia. That address has been filled so far with comments about the role of the West, hasn't it?
5: Yes, it has. Uh, Putin has stuck to the script that he he actually outlined even before he invaded Ukraine, um, that the problem with Ukraine is the West, that Ukraine is intrinsically part of Mother Russia, sacred site, Kiev, an ancient Russian city, and that the West is trying to pull Ukraine away from Russia and create a kind of alternative Russia. This is all the West's fault. Russia is the victim and is simply trying to defend itself. We've heard it before, but he said it today with much greater flamboyance and much greater emphasis.
0: And when it comes to decadence, the West and its liberal values are not to be trusted.
2: He is repeating that assertion that Russia was facing a Nazi threat.
5: Yes, And this has been echoed in uh, right across Russian society. I mean, moving away from the speech slightly, um, they have uh, started to talk about NATO Nazis in the suggestion that that NATO is actually a neo-Nazi organization dedicated to the overthrow of the culture of Mother Russia. Um, Rather nastily, uh, talking about culture, there was a section of the speech on LGBT rights Uh, where Putin made clear that essentially he didn't think that they should have any, um, that the only valid relationship uh, in this sphere was between a man and a woman who then begat children, and that the West was decadent. And that was a point at which the audience rose to its feet and clapped. Not Mm -hmm. a pretty sight.
2: Mm -hmm. Because he accuses the West of trying to destabilise family life in Russia.
5: Yes, he does. He regards what we regard as legitimate discussion of LGBT rights, as, uh, as cultural imperialism. Um, that this is, uh, that the Russia has values and the rest is challenging these and is therefore aggressive.
0: Later that same day in Warsaw, a counter speech from Joe Biden.
4: When Russia invaded, it wasn't just Ukraine being tested. The whole world faced a test for the ages. Europe was being tested. America was being tested. NATO was being tested. All democracies were being tested. The questions we faced were as simple as they were profound. Would we respond or would we look the other way? Would we be strong or would we be weak? Would we, we all of our allies, would be united or divided? One year later, we know the answer. We did respond, we would be strong, we would be united, and the world would not look the other way.
0: For analysis, Cormac on Drive Time was joined by Russian security expert at think tank Chatham House, Keir Giles.
7: Can I ask you about the promises made in Biden's speech? Uh, Were there any uh, any talk of um, sanctions, further sanctions? No. In fact, uh, the content was very lacking. Uh, there was a lot of defiant language. There was a lot of promises to to come to the aid of people who were under attack, some of which are a little bit questionable because his reading of the North Atlantic Treaty is, uh, is a little bit off-beam, it seems. There was a lot of thanks to Poland for stepping up and assisting Ukraine, not only with the direct help, but also with receiving nearly two million Ukrainian refugees. Uh, but it wasn't very much in terms of actual substance. There wasn't a lot going on there that people were might possibly have been hoping for in terms of new announcements of support for Ukraine.
0: From Drive Time. This week also saw increasing visibility of China. On Wednesday, its top diplomat met Putin and vowed to deepen their strategic cooperation. And yesterday, a 12-point peace plan from China calling for a ceasefire and peace talks. But according to Europe editor Tony Connolly on the News at One, this is not a realistic proposition for either side.
7: At the moment, there's a focus on this Chinese peace plan, which uh, was published by the Chinese president today. That's been pretty much rejected as somewhat vague by by the West. Uh, Kiev saying it's they welcome the fact that China has uh, taken this step, but, but the, the, the Chinese plan does not require U- Russian forces to leave uh, Ukraine. So it's something of a non-starter for, for Kiev at, at the moment.
0: Meanwhile, in Ukraine, knife-edge tension as they anticipate fresh attacks to mark this bleak anniversary. But as the world watches from afar, what of the Ukrainians who have come here to Ireland as refugees and trying to make the best of their lives? Lives that have been upended in the most brutal of ways. All week long on Drive Time, John Cook has been talking to Ukrainians here are some students at mary immaculate secondary school in listun varna
8: now my dad is home uh, and i very miss uh, him mm-hmm. he is lawyer now i don't see my father for one year and
1: this is so sad for me this year changed me like a lot i feel like more older than i was i feel that Maybe it broke me somehow, because it was like very hard for me, my mom, and even for my family that uh, I left in Ukraine. <sighs>
0: mm-hmm. And in Limerick, these two women living in a hotel. The first voice is that of English teacher Natalie, who is here with her 16-year-old son and 6-year-old daughter.
1: We thought that it would will take one one week. That's all, and we will uh, come back to our city, to our houses. But nothing happened, and uh, my husband told me that I must go with my uh, children uh, abroad. Mm-hmm.
9: You said you hoped it would be one week, then you could go home, and, and as it it becomes one year now, how do you feel?
1: <sighs> it's hard it's hard because you can't plan plan anything you don't know anything that w- will will be tomorrow that's that's really hard and john also spoke to photographer olena
0: oleksienko about her new exhibition with faith
10: we are planning to mark one year of a war and uh, to show that our community is strong and to say thank you to Irish people for their support and the opportunity they give to us mm-hmm. here in uh, Limerick. Back at the hotel where Alina has been
9: sharing a room with her 12 and 10-year-old daughters for almost a year now, I ask her about her husband who stayed behind to fight in the war.
10: He was drafted to the army because of the war. He is an IT specialist, he's programmer and when the war started he went to the army.
9: And how is he, do you know? Um,
10: he, he's fine, yeah. It's like, in Ukrainian point of view, fine, he's alive. <laughs> so it's like that.
9: Mm-hmm. You tell me you, you, you can't say where, where he is because of the dangers that he, he's, he faces. Presumably he has lost colleagues or friends.
10: Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I will not talk about that.
9: You don't want to talk about that?
10: Uh, no, I don't.
9: Mm-hmm. I don't blame you, that's yeah. very hard to talk about.
10: <laughs> yeah, I don't want to think about that.
0: Drive Time's John Cook with just some stories of the Ukrainian refugees here in Ireland. Yesterday, just before they went off air, Onya on Morning Ireland brought us this. One year ago today, comedian-turned-president Vladimir Zelensky
2: found himself and his country under attack from Russia. And at the time, most experts predicted that he would flee and Ukraine would fall. But the President and his country defied expectations, and today President Zelensky addressed his people about the terrible year they've endured and the road ahead to victory.
3: A year ago on this day, from this same place around 7 in the morning, I addressed you with a brief statement lasting only 67 seconds. We are strong, we are ready for anything, we will defeat everyone. This is how it began on February 24th, 2022, the longest day of our lives. The most difficult day in our recent history. We woke up early and haven't slept since. Almost everyone has at least one contact in their phone that will never pick up that phone again. He who will not respond to the SMS, how are you? Those three simple words got a new meaning during the year of the war. We became one big army. We have become a team where someone finds, someone packs, someone brings, but everyone contributes. Its main conclusion is that we have survived. We had not been defeated and we will do everything to win this year. Back in a bit.
0: Welcome back. A question. Would you let your mammy choose your lover? Well, maybe not your lover. That is a little bit icky. But your life partner... We're talking arranged marriages versus the swiping algorithm, two quite different ways to find love. And the premise behind a new film called What's Love? Got to do with it, from producer and screenwriter Jemima Khan, who you might recall was once married to cricketer and Pakistani politician Imran Khan. She spoke to Miriam.
11: We all assume, I suppose, in the world we've got to fall hopelessly in love randomly and that arranged marriages or assisted marriages can't work. But do you think that's right? Did you change your mind when you lived in Pakistan?
8: Yeah, I did. I lived in my ex-husband's joint family household with his... Uh, father and his sisters and their husbands and their children who later on grew up and had arranged marriages. And they'd all had arranged marriages. There were no love marriages, what they call love marriages in in his family. Right the way through from, you know, the the aunts and uncles who'd met on the wedding day through to assisted marriage where the children had been introduced by their parents and you know encouraged to get to know and decide themselves and I genuinely you lived with you live with people it's hard to hide if you're actually living Mm -hmm. in the same house Uh, and I genuinely saw some very happy arranged or assisted marriages Um, and I did actually, you know, it did cause me to reflect on, I mean, you know, if we're letting an algorithm uh, select for us, why not also consider letting the person who kind of knows us best and loves us most have a go at selecting too. And lest you think all of this is in the past, not so. It's still the norm in most of the world. If you look at the kind of global statistics, more people have arranged marriages than not in today's world, which is a weird thought given how alien a concept it does feel to most people growing up in the West. But would she consider something like an
0: arranged marriage?
8: I'm not here to kind of judge that one way is better or one way is worse but I think there's something interesting in the idea of walking into love rather than falling into love. The idea of simmer then boil and you know, I, I mean, I can say personally, I've definitely been ruined on a, on a diet of rom-coms growing up. Um, and, you know, I think we do kind of have these expectations of a sort of, you know, of a love that's going to complete us and that is, you know, almost takes the place of religion in its... Um, you know, mythological, uh, uh, grand status, and I, I think there's, you know, so there's something in between passion and pragmatism, where, where, th- which I think this film is looking at, that that's kind of interesting. But that's not to say that, that I'm not a romantic. I, I'm both, part cynic, part romantic.
0: Interesting alternative to swiping. But then, as the interview was coming to a close, Miriam asked her about her fear of flying which elicited this terrifying story.
8: I was in a plane that got um, hijacked. A a madman tried to suicide crash a British Airways flight I was on in 2001. I was on board with my children and he got uh, hold of the, um, he jumped into the cockpit seat got hold of the controls and tried to suicide crash the plane we fell 20,000 feet and um, it was only thanks to the pilot who managed to who was having a rest and managed to make it back up to the cockpit who had been watching a National Geographic program with his son the night before about sharks and they said the vulnerable point on a shark is the eye or maybe he even made that up but he basically couldn't get this man had the literal strength of the insane insane and couldn't get dislodged the guy from from the the seat and he pulled him out by the the eye thus gouging his eye out and in the process uh had his own thumb and his ear bitten off so it was all very very dramatic and he to his great credit came on the tannoy immediately and said in tears a bad man's tried to kill us all, but we're all right now. And then about five minutes later, he went, this is your captain, Captain Hagen, we'll be travelling on to Nairobi, (laughs) completely composed again. Um, So it was quite, yes, so for years I couldn't fly. Um, I found it really, really hard to fly and I would take trains if it was Europe and I have now finally got over my fear and I managed to fly to Australia to promote the film, so yay. Yay quite frightening. Jemima Khan with Miriam. Oh, and by the way, Irina
0: reviewed her film A House Divided, two stars versus four. Now, death. Yes, we know it's there, but we don't really want to know it's there. And we don't want to dwell on it. And the death of a child? Well, that is almost unimaginable. With Ryan, Jane Richardson, a nurse specialising in paediatric oncology and palliative care.
4: I deal in communication. You have to deal in a communication that no one wants to, to 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 have in their life. Let's face it. You have to say things that no one should say but must say, especially to um, children of all people. Um, talk to me through a little bit about that, Jane. Um, talking to... Uh, Parents, holding the hands of parents, uh, talking about a a cancer diagnosis, talking to a child and saying it's limited. Um, Where do you go with this?
10: I, I first of all I would say that it's a very privileged role and it was one that I'm very, very privileged Why to Why is it a done. privilege
4: to to deliver such sad and bad news?
10: Because it's horrendous. It's something that no parent ever wants to hear about their child. No child ever wants to hear this. It's the cruelest thing that can ever happen. But to be able to support families, Isn't that a privilege to help them at their darkest time that you can be there to support them? That's an honour and a privilege. I
4: don't see it that way at all. I would be so scared and so upset and so I would find it so dark that I wouldn't see it as a privilege. I see it as a a desperately difficult thing to do. And that's why I'm asking you in a non-challenging way. Yeah, it's actually I'm in awe. And I mean that of, of, of. People like you to do what you do. I could never even think about doing it, let alone acting on that. So talk to me about the privilege.
10: It's, well, I think it's 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 an honour and I, I think you're there to support the families because it's the families and the children that are going through it. We only play a small part in supporting them and sure. helping them. And she talked about the honesty and weirdly, the humour. I, I remember one girl in particular, the mum, uh, unfortunately, just said, I, I can't tell her. Will you tell her? So How I went, old was the girl? She was a teenager. So she, you know, she knew yep. what was going to happen. She knew by my face. I went in and we sat down. I held her hands and we both cried. She knew, but I can't. I, I mean, you've met me before. You know, I, my emotion on my face. I don't hide it. Yeah. And what do you say? What's the language? The language is age appropriate. That is the most so for important teenage girl, thing. You uh, say for a teenage girl, I, we sat in. And I said, I'm so sorry, darling. And she said, am I going to die? I said, yes, you are. I'm so sorry, I wish I didn't have to say this to you. I wish it was something different. I wish with all my heart this was something different. But we can't. The doctors have tried everything, you know, and we go back over the history. And she actually knew it herself. And she said, I knew I didn't want to just let my mom and dad know. I knew." But what was amazing about her is she wanted, she was very aware of her parents, and she wanted to write a will. So I helped her write her will and she wanted certain things and we we did that. And do you know, even in such sadness and such tragedy, there can be humour. Now I know that sounds really strange, but it there doesn't, can be humour because um I, I was talking to the priest as well and the priest was mm. amazed by this girl and he was saying She's amazing, you know. She even, you know, she even wanted Poppy on the altar, and I said, "Father, you didn't agree to have Poppy on the altar, did you?" And he said, "Yeah." Why? I said, "You know, Poppy's our horse." <laughs> it's the first time I've ever heard a priest curse, <laughs> and it's probably the last time. But it yeah. was just, you know, okay. the, you know, clever girl, clever girl, you know. Yeah. But it's
0: just. Oh, you've got to admire that one. But as Jane Richardson told Ryan, there was anger, but also
10: a peace of sorts. One girl was angry she'd never see the end of the Hunger Games. You know, another boy was angry, you know, that he wasn't going to see some big football match that was happening. You know, things like that as well. And it's just...
4: How do they cope with the enormity of
10: knowing? Do you know, it's strange. A calmness comes over them. The ones that know. Some parents don't want their children to know. And that's, again, that's for the parents, depending on their ages. But again, the older children, they know a calmness comes over them. And the most important thing for them is families. They want to be with their families constantly, constantly. It's yeah. family. It's That's the most important thing. And it's supporting the families and uh, helping them to, you know, have. And a good death sounds terrible, but it's to have as good as death as they can because there's no one rule. There's no one size that fits all. It's what's best for the family. And our roles as the healthcare professionals, and it's not just nurses, it's doctors, nurses, social workers, healthcare assistants. Yeah. Uh, you know, we had one uh, one child I remember as well, who uh, was, he loved the Henry, the Hoover. Yeah. And the domestic staff would come in and they would deliberately tear up papers just so this child could go and Hoover them up. They're the things we're talking about. They're the caring aspect of it. And you never... You never forget that care and that never leaves you and the children never leave you and I think that's something that's really important. And as the chat continued, Ryan remembered a
0: story that she had told him a while ago. I remember uh, you, you know.
4: telling me um, in the post late, late that time about the the young lad... <laughs> I mean, the young teenage fella who's with the blood pressure. Oh,
10: yeah. <laughs> um, you've got to
4: share that story, won't
10: you? OK, so, um, yes, this is really not good for me, but um, we had a gorgeous boy. I hope he's not listening. Yeah. A teenage boy. And um, I was looking after him and I job shared. And he was OK. He was in. He was having his chemo weekly and going home. But my job sharer said to me, you, did you not notice his blood pressure is high? I said, no, his blood pressure is fine with me. <laughs> so anyway, monitors were organised at home. Blood pressure was fine at home and I went down to the ward and went how are you how's your blood pressure yeah it's up again I said that's really strange can I take it I took it it was normal so in my innocence I was like okay is a white coat syndrome were you worried because you're out in the ward what is it and then I realised as the beautiful student nurse walked by and I went did she take your blood pressure <laughs> yeah oh no wonder it's up <laughs> so then I had to go to oh, the consultant no. tell the consultant I've actually cured him of his blood pressure and so the consultant came down and said yes I believe Jane is cured Culture. Only women over a certain age are taking your blood pressure from now on because they're a different type of hot. Know, so, you know. so there you go,
0: oh, menopause has started. Oh
3: gosh, oh that's so funny. Uh, the poor young lad's nerves are gone.
0: <laughs> Jane Richardson with Ryan. On Arena, an hour long special with an audience and Sebastian Barry on the publication of his latest novel, Old God's Time. And as we move through the novel, we learn that the characters of Tom and his late wife June had grown up in Catholic institutions and suffered sexual abuse. And on this, Sebastian Barry is unflinching and unforgiving.
12: The problem with what we call almost cloakingly clerical abuse or abuse or neglectful nuns, or the rest of it is that there's nothing really in the statute books, in my, to my mind, that properly covers the crime. Because to me, just having been so bothered and obliterated, obliterated by it over the years and the contemplation of it, to me, it is in, in effect, to, in my legal mind, either a murder or attempted murder. Because what you do to the child is you take away entirely the road that was before them in their lives. Um, you rescind their future. You cancel their future. And, and otherwise, it, it sort of destroys time. It's a murder of time. It's a murder of a sp- person's spirit. And the person can only struggle to reconstruct themselves. The judiciary of the day, far from being the people who would come to the assistance of victims, were actually people, if they will forgive me for saying so, deeply complicit in the creation of victims, because they were the people sending uh, children to these places. I still get a strange odor from all these uh, redress boards of a fundamental lack of understanding of the nature of the crime. There's still a tendency, it seems to me, as people are tortured to try and repeat what happened to them, to prove what happened to them, to get a few shillings, that they don't realise that what they're talking about is in effect murder.
0: And while much of his novel deals with Ireland of the 50s and 60s, the influence of the church, Barry argues, can still be felt in the Ireland of today.
12: I suppose I am anti-clerical, but I am... An enormous fan of men in dresses, as you may have noticed from Days Without End, but n- possibly not in this instance. I mean, men in those frightening black satans in school when you're just small and they're they are trying to tell you how to be. They terrorized us about our own bodies, you might say. And at the same time, there is a percentage of priests maybe also as a result in some way I can't quite work out of the 19th century preying on children. So we, we lived in this world where this body, let's just concentrate, if we may, on the priesthood, who are both trying to tell us about our sexuality, and some of them also assaulting our sexuality. So for me as a human being, a human person alive in this time, the son of um, do you know, a young gay man and myself, even now when I hear the current Archbishop of Armagh saying, saying in that strange tone, they use when they're about to say something catastrophic, that to be gay is not a sin. But homosexual acts are a sin. And I, you know, God forgive me, if I had any control over Irish society, which luckily for Irish society I don't, I would forbid any priest ever again to say anything about our human sexuality in public, ever. That would be my rule.
0: Sebastian Barry with Sean Rocks on Arena. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With the Darcy and on... Un... Nope. Don't know how to get into this one. It's just a bit too nuts.
9: ski-joring. Ski-joring. Joring. Skijor. Skijor. Skijor, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, we have the name, but what incarnation is it?
9: A horse or a pack of dogs pulls a skier. So that's, ah, yeah. that's the original use. It's kind of a Nordic uh, way of getting around the place. So it's been adapted now to the sport where you have a, a ridden horse pulling a skier. Okay. So your skier is attached to uh, a, a rider uh, on a horse, and it's three, two, one, go.
0: That is the voice of Barry O'Brien Lynch, he beyond the skis, on the <coughs> Susan Oakes. They are besties from childhood and from Navan, none of which explains how they became sprint ski jur champions in 2020, a title they are returning to Canada to defend. But all of this started when Susan and Barry went for a few drinks, a few little beverages with a fellow horse rider.
4: We were sitting at the bar having a few drinks and we just said "For what do you do during the, the winter? What's your sport? And she said, oh, ski touring. And we were like, what's that? And she told us, and then we were like, would you take a Team Ireland? And she said, game on. So... Right, yeah,
9: that's how yeah. it happened. That was it, yeah. We saw it, she started running off a few videos, and it just looked like the craziest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. I said, Just Could sign you? me up. So, you, you're a good skier, yeah. I like I've been on skiing holidays, like yes. I'd, be, I'd be, yeah, I'd be capable, you okay. know. Okay, you go off with the lads there for a week, and yeah, I can get myself around a mountain. And, and you're a very capable horsewoman, mm.
4: yeah. Is that I, how you
9: describe it, a horsewoman? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I'd be. Quite have you got capable. a record for something? Or yeah, a, uh,
4: I'm a Guinness World, I have a Guinness World record for a jump in the highest jump side saddle I jumped 6 foot 8
9: see there that says it all doesn't it yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I should be handy enough like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just, just, so, <laughs> side saddle side you saddle. wouldn't be happy enough to do it No, oh, yeah. no
4: not a dry it Just has, has to go that extra little bit further
5: so you, you, you cleared 6
9: 8
0: side yeah. saddle yeah wow or knee but straight face this is a serious sporting event isn't it
9: yeah but with the obstacle course <laughs> uh, relay race, the sprint, and the Alpine Lounge race. Right. And the Alpine Lounge is we, we've we've actually we ha- we had it built the last time we were out there. So it's it's a sofa on a pallet, with two skate with two snowboards uh, screwed to the bottom of the pallet. And every every lounge every lounge has to be the same. So all the teams whatever teams are out there that want to enter it they have to make up a lounge with a, with a sofa, a lamp, a coffee table.
4: And, and what, does the poor horse have to pull that? Two yeah. horses. Two horses two, horses pull yeah. two riders, yeah. Right. So it's like to kind of emulate that we're sitting at a in a pub, yeah. basically. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, yeah. where, the, the where, it, all where started, it all started, started yeah.
0: Oh ye oldies, circle of life. But how do you train for such an event? Because Navan is not exactly known for its snow. But carpets on the other hand?
9: The first year, like we hadn't really a clue gone over. So the very first year, uh, we were trying to figure out what that pull would be like. Uh, you know, to to go from a standing start to fast. Uh, how how do you stand? Where where should you be? So anyway, we got we got a lump <laughs> of carpet and a kid sled, and an old tractor, and uh, started. Susan was pulling me up and down the yard, trying to trying to feel right. where 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 your body balance should be in ski joring. What you're trying to do is you're... You're getting a, a lateral pull from the from the back of the horse, and the skis are, are obviously underneath you. So what you need to do is keep the skis in front of you until your 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 body balance can get your, your you can get your upper body over right. the front of the skis okay, again yeah. and get yourself steered up the course. So, so so you you managed to work out all this in, yeah. in a farmyard in on a, a piece of carpet and a yeah. kid's sleigh been pulled by an old tractor.
1: Well done. exactly yeah yeah That's yeah was that was done. that was it
9: and so yeah we, th- this time anyway we after being there once we obviously realized that the 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 friction on the carpet uh, isn't uh is too much is more than the yeah, snow, the snow yeah. so um we stuck a couple of skateboards onto skis. So we're able to, because there's no, there's obviously less friction there. So we're, we're, right. And I rode a
4: horse instead of driving a tractor this time. I'm
9: trying to get this picture. This is like, can I have the rights to the movie? (laughs) How much do you want for the rights to the movie? Are you you going out? Is it a romantic thing as well? No. No. Now we can just write that in.
0: (laughs) Oh, he is not wrong. That is absolutely magnificent. Our ski duer heroes, Susan Oakes and Barry O'Brien Lynch. Come on, Ireland. Now, speaking of heroes, at this stage Ban She Fever has abated somewhat. Yeah, we won! And by we we mean Kerry Condon and Barry Keoghan and yes, Martin McDonough. But now we want Oscars. Lots of them. But let us not forget the Hasty Pudding Award winner. This year it went to Legally
11: Blonde and White Lotus actor Jennifer Coolidge. Wearing a leopard-print fur coat and fluffy pink hat, the 61-year-old braved plunging temperatures of minus 20 degrees Celsius as she was paraded in an open-top car surrounded by drag queens in Cambridge, Massachusetts. The Boston native then took to the stage in a tiny theatre, wearing a black evening gown and gravity-defying blow-dry, threw in a dolphin costume, wielded a water pistol, judged a look-alike competition, and endured a blistering roast of her acting talents, before being presented with her prize as the winner of the Hasty Pudding 73rd Annual Woman of the Year competition.
0: Woman of the Year is right. But what, you might wonder, is The Hasty Pudding? With more from Massachusetts,
11: Alice Hutton for World Report. The Hasty Pudding is the oldest theatrical group in the US, founded at Harvard University in 1844, with the society itself extending back to 1795. Every year since 1951, the undergraduate students write and star in an original production and charity fundraiser, with a famous actress invited to take part including, over the years, luminaries like Meryl Streep and Elizabeth Taylor. Just like Coolidge, however, the Hasty Pudding has also undergone its own metamorphosis, after the all-male group finally ended its decades-long ban on female students as recently as 2018.
0: Only since 2018? Oh my. But Coolidge, for one, was delighted. Here's why.
11: Afterwards, she explained that the night was more important than any film or TV show in her whole career because her father had attended Harvard in the 1940s, as had both his brothers, who had also been members of the Hasty Pudding Theatricals back when it was still an all-male outfit. With real tears in her eyes, Coolidge cradled the pot close and called the experience of finally going to Harvard a dream come true.
0: Aw, oh, from World Report. <sighs> Politically, here at home, all change at the Social Democrats.
8: The
7: world of politics wasn't so much rocked as meekly nudged in the arm this week when the Social Democrats teased what they called a significant announcement. That turned out a tad overstated as two people unknown to anyone who doesn't subscribe to at least two political podcasts resigned as co-leaders of an eight-year-old party currently attracting 2% in the polls. After you, Catherine. Ah, no, after you, Roisin. Oh, no, after you, Catherine. Honestly, after you, Roisin. No, I insist, you... You! You! We've been co-leading this party for eight years now, and by this stage we could almost finish each other's... ineffective policy announcements. And look, Dennis O'Brien hasn't done anything fun enough for me to smack down in ages, so the fun is really over. The Sock Dems will take less than a fortnight to select a new leader from its thin ranks of New Age Howie's and mild-mannered lefties. TDs who couldn't be more woke if they were rolled up in Greta Thunberg's yellow coat and chained to a hedge by Antoshka. Mihal Lahan, it's me, I'm the problem, it's me, RT News.
0: Very bold. Now, it is about two hours behind you at this stage few. But it turns out the most stressful time of the day is 7.23am. Here is Dr. Yolanta Burke, Associate Professor at the RSCI University of Medicine and Health. On drive time.
1: About one hour before we wake up, our cortisol levels start rising and then they soar. And for the rest of the day, they try to lower themselves until we go to sleep and wake up again and the same thing happens. Although sometimes um, it's not as easy when we experience a lot of stress. The cortisol levels go up and down throughout the day. And definitely uh, the daily hassles you've just mentioned make a huge difference to this.
8: Okay, so sorry, because I was about to say maybe this is just a a sort of a natural thing that our cortisol levels are going up anyway and, and, you know, that the morning routine, however hectic it is, um, doesn't matter. But it does matter, doesn't it? It makes it just an awful lot worse.
1: It does, and if we have many daily hassles, it's it's even um, more detrimental. Those daily hassles are more detrimental to our health than um, maybe even big traumas that we experience really? uh, in some cases. Because when big traumas happen, we often get support from others. We even kind of give ourselves a um, pass on our back for, for dealing well with some adversities. But when uh, the whole load of bad things, small bad things happen, like, for example, the daily hassles, Um, We tend not to give ourselves a break. We tend to blame ourselves for not dealing well with what we're experiencing. Mm. And there is nobody with lasagna um, uh, on the doorstep helping us through it.
0: And her suggestion to make our own lasagna, so to speak, get up earlier, establish a routine and hopefully then eliminate any additional stressors. But Sarah too had done her research. She thought we all needed to be a little bit more Larry.
8: Larry Gogan, everybody will remember him, legendary broadcaster Larry Gogan. And he was undertaking some tests and asked to wear a heart monitor. And when the cardiologist was reviewing the data, they asked him, what are you doing at this particular time of day that they, they had spotted? And the, Larry asked, why are you interested? And the doctor says, because this is when you're at your calmest and experiencing zero stress. And it turned out that was the time when Larry was live on air. My goodness. Yeah, so, I, you know, maybe times that you would think would be high stress aren't, You'll Eulantar.
1: Exactly. And I think that uh, this just shows how um, the, the great impact of, of work, uh, that work can have on you, that daily um, life can have on you. Uh, if you are in the right place, if you have the right attitude towards you doing the things you love, if you're flourishing, be it, be it at work or in gen- generally in your uh, daily life, you don't experience as much stress. And uh, the truth about it is that stress is not bad for us. Stress is actually helping us keep going. If our stress levels didn't go very high up in the morning, we wouldn't be able to get out of bed in the first place. We wouldn't be able to concentrate, do the work and do the things that we that we love doing throughout the day. So stress not so bad. Okay. Um,
0: uh,
1: stress obviously is. But the, absolutely, if if we are enjoying it, um, I'm sure that it doesn't really matter what we're doing. Okay. As long and and as try to bring it. it
8: down during the day if we can, so that we can all get to sleep at night, so we can do it all again the following morning. <laughs>
0: Well, that is almost it, but we cannot go without a high five, a salute and one hell of a boogie for Dave Fanning. The news this week that 2FM at the weekends is no more but digital and podcast land. Watch out, he is coming for you, if you can keep up with him. Well, that is it for this week's Playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.